Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. It's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zielinski. The Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now... Here is your host, End Time Watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello listeners and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this Monday, March 30th, 2015. A shout out to all the listeners tuning in from Worldwide Christian Radio and the new listeners at WINB and all of you tuning in from across the globe. Folks, my guest today is Ken Shorjan. He's a writer for The Examiner. He has written incredible geopolitical analysis and has a keen perspective on all facets of the financial world. He has owned his own business and corporations and has vast acumen in investing, securities, real estate, currency, trading, and international trusts. But he's not here to talk today about finances. He's here to talk about a very fascinating book he wrote entitled The Israel Deception. Subtitle Is the Return of Israel in the End Times a Move by Satan or an Act of God? And he's here to discuss this topic, and it's a pleasure to bring him on the show. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, and I appreciate the time, Sheila. Thank you, Ken. Well, you know, it's really interesting because, as you know, the big news is the Israel election with Netanyahu. It's very timely, your book, but also, according to end-time events, Ken, I think I tend to agree with you that prophecy is built on two cornerstones. First, there is prophecy that is manifested by the hand of God for a purpose, time, or season, And secondly, there is prophecy regarding events that are simply foreseen by the Almighty as destined to occur and take place. So the bottom line is God does give us people warnings on events to watch for and what we can expect in the future. Now, in your book, The Israel Deception, you go through a litany of false prophetic assumptions, which we are going to jump right into. Now, your first false prophetic assumption is that in the book of Isaiah chapter 66, this is an assumption that it's talking about the rebirth of Israel in 1947 and not an event that occurred thousands of years before. Get into that one first for the listeners, Ken. Yeah, if you notice there's something about the Christian mindset, okay, a lot of times what 
Christians will do, and it, it, it's not necessarily just the people, but it's the, the pastors, it's the teachers, it's all that. They'll take a single verse, scripture verse, and then try to write an entire doctrine of it. <laughs> yeah. They bypass the entire context of not only the chapter, but the entire book, the key time frame of where everything is going. For example, one of the things that people don't realize is that the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Jews, do not think like we do here in the 21st century, okay? We in the West think things chronologically, okay? We think of things going from point A to point B over the course of time, and we think of events being several different events between that time period, so we think chronologically. The ancient Hebrews always wrote conceptually in group thought. For example, they would write about an entire topic from beginning to end. Time doesn't matter in that, but that's what they would, they would write about. This is why Jesus, when you take a look in the New Testament, say Matthew 24, okay, there are two specific topics that Jesus is talking about. The first distinct topic is from verse 1 to about verse 19 to 22. And then he stops and he starts talking about something completely different. Most people interpret that to mean that entire chapter is about the same thing, only in two different time frames. No, it's two distinct separate topics. The first one is talking about the second coming. The, the second one is talking about the rapture. Two distinct events that he went and talked about specifically, not interlacing them. And so you have to do this in the context of nearly every single thing of the Bible because it was written by Jews 2,000 years ago in a mindset and idioms of their time, not ours. So when we take a look at Isaiah 66, 8, and what got me on this, on this path is I heard a lot of people who were talking about Israel and the return of Israel and the support of Israel and as a nation. I'm not talking about the Jewish people. I'm talking about the return of Israel as a kingdom. They uh, always quoted a set number of different scriptures to validate their, their point. I went out and I searched on the Internet. I listened to people, and I tried to take pretty much every single main scripture that they used to justify the return of Israel in 1947 and break them down into not only the original language, but the entire context, what the prophet was talking about, et cetera, et cetera. So when we get to 66.8, immediately I find something that is absolutely in opposition to what most people believe. Now, the other problem with the Bible is, is that not only are so many different translations different, but they've changed words and context. And so which one is right? Give an example. 66, 8 in King James Version. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now if we go to the NIV and you carry that through, it says, Who has seen such things? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Well, do you think there's a big difference between shall the earth and can a country? We're talking about two completely different things that have nothing to do with each other. Some people follow the NIV, and they base their entire foundation on the NIV. Some follow the KGV, and they do their based on the English translations of those. So you got to go back to the Hebrew. Now, here's where we get into the most important thing. The most important thing is the word nation. Now, if I was to ask you here in the 21st century, in, in the English concept, what is a nation? Well, when I think of a nation, I think of a large aggregate of people that are united by a culture, a history, 
a language that are inhabiting a certain territory. Okay, so you would think it's people. But if I say, like, the nation of the United States, most people think it's a country, country. a government. That's where we get the problem, because they have taken that word nation, those who believe in the return of Israel, and justify the word nation to the land. However, when you take a look at the word nation in Hebrew, it's the word gawi. It means nation or people, usually of non-Hebrew people, B, of descendants of Abraham, C, of descendants of Israel. So we're talking specifically about a people. This is why the opposite word of Gawi is Goyim. The Jews and the Gentiles, the Gawi and the Goyim, it's talking about peoples. It's not talking about a land. It's not talking about a country. It's not talking about a government institution. It's talking about people. Now, when in history did we find that a nation of people was created in a day when God made covenant with Abraham? So this has nothing to do with the return of Israel in in the 21st century. This is talking about, Isaiah is talking about when God created a nation, a people unto his own, and it's referring to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when you take a look at the entire context of 66.8, you got to realize Isaiah was the prophet to Jerusalem in a time when they would still have four other exiles in their history. So which one is he talking about? How can you justify this being the 21st century return when there was still three others that were going to take place before it happened? That's, right. that's taking a not a leap of faith. That's taking a leap of paradigm. I want to believe that this verse refers to the return of Israel in the 21st century, so I'm going to bypass all of the three exiles. And the fact that the important thing was Isaiah for the entire chapter 66, he was writing about the characteristics of Yahweh. He was trying to remind the people, these are the characteristics of your God, because you're going to go into exile into Babylon and into places that worship other gods. You're going to be there for centuries, and you're going to be pulled towards these other gods, but here is how you will distinguish Yahweh from the rest. That's exactly what Isaiah 66 was about. So, so Ken, we pay, when we talk about the promise on being established, we know the area was eventually broken into two kingdoms, that of Judah and Israel. So I guess it's important to understand here that all religious and spiritual events are centered in that context within Judah, Jerusalem, and the temples that were built there. So in the context of the book of Isaiah, we need to really determine what his message actually was, the vision he was referring to, and what was the intended importance of those words that he said, correct? Well, exactly. And by the way, all you have to do is, who is Isaiah talking to? Let's go to Isaiah 1.1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It would have been the kings of Judah and Hezekiah. Exactly. Isaiah was prophet to Judah and Jerusalem. There were other prophets that were tied to the kingdom of Israel. And you know, you have to remember this. The kingdom of Israel was was born out of rebellion. David unified a kingdom. And then Solomon had the kingdom. And there were 10 tribes plus a bunch of Levites who refused to swear fealty to Solomon's son. And so they broke off out of rebellion and created their own kingdom. And they started disobeying God. And by the way, if you remember the book, The Harbingers, everybody focuses on New York City and 9-11. 
but it's in parallel. It was, it was in comparison to what Israel was doing, and Israel was cut off, and then they tried to rebuild, and God said, nope, you're not going to do it. So all you have to do is go to the harbingers to know that Israel, by God's command and word, was not going to be rebuilt. The second false prophetic assumption is that God reestablished the kingdom of Israel in 1947, even after he destroyed it forever in 722 BC. So get into that chapter, Ken. Yeah, when you look at Second Kings and the events culminating in the cutting off of the children of Israel and the destruction of the kingdom of Israel, at least until you know the end times, you take a look at Second Kings 713 through 1733, and I'm going to touch on some of the really specific ones. 1715, and they rejected his statutes, the kingdom of Israel against God, and his covenant that he made with their fathers. And in 1716, and they left all the commandments of the Lord their God. Move to the next verse. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and we're talking the kingdom here, it's Yisrael, and removed them out of his sight, there were none left but the tribe of Judah only. All the tribes, gone. And Lord rejected all the seed of Israel, afflicted them, delivered them into the hands of the spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. And here's where we get really specific. For he rent Israel from the house of David. He cut them off. He cut them completely off from the covenant. And Jeroboam drove Israel out from following Lord because Jeroboam was an unrighteous man. Here's the prophetic. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, and he said, by all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their land to Assyria unto this day. Now, for anybody who studied ancient Hebrew, until that day is an idiom, has always been an idiom, and it speaks about Messiah. It talks about the Messianic reign. Every ancient Hebrew rabbi will tell you when you see that idiom, it's referring to the time when Messiah comes to rule. Only going to happen in the Messianic period, in the millennial reign, and that's where in Second Kings it's stated Israel was carried off unto this day. So right here we have validated that Israel will not return as a people or a nation until Yeshua the Messiah comes. Well, that's one they, they use a lot, isn't it? That one there in Second Kings. Yes, it is. And it says specifically that they were cut off. They were rent from the house of David. They were removed out of his sight. And by the way, here's something else, okay? Besides just breaking down scriptures, word for word, context to context, and the original language, in the covenant, okay, there were always requirements for the covenant. To go back into the land, what was required by the people? repentance. Right. In in what capacity, in any way, shape, or form, have the inhabitants of the country of Israel today ever repented? As a matter of fact, according to the Chamber of Commerce in Tel Aviv, 80% of all inhabitants of Israel, all Jewish inhabitants of Israel, are secular. They don't follow the covenant, and this is the thing. Why would God, by his hand, recreate the kingdom if there was not, it was not tied to covenant, because remember what the land is. It's not a covenant, it's a promise. It doesn't carry the same weight as a covenant does. What are we talking about in this Abrahamic covenant? So if that involves a promise, would it be land to Abraham and Israel a nation? Well, according to the promise that's tied to the Abrahamic covenant, it says that he will give a land 
to Abraham and his descendants. Now, according to the promise, does it say that they will be allowed to inhabit that land? It says they will have the land forever, but it doesn't say that they will inhabit the land forever. As a matter of fact, if that was true, then they should have never been exiled a single time. There's two crucial points I think we got to look at objectively. Yeshua, if you really look at the Mosaic Covenant, when he cursed the fig tree, you know, the whole law and the temple dominion in Jerusalem, through the establishment of that covenant, there's a difference between physical and spiritual, isn't there here? Oh, you, you, just, you just hit it on the head. See, if, if God gave access through Messiah to the kingdom of God, is that not a land, a country, a realm unto itself? that all who, who accept Messiah and follow Messiah have access to, no matter where they live? See, that's the thing. The land was given for the sole purpose, and the entire thing about the covenants was sole purpose of bringing Messiah to the earth. There was no purpose for the land or the mosaic, or as Paul says, there is no longer Jew and Gentile. So what really is the significance of the land. If God was to give a loophole, then then Yeshua is not the way, the truth, and the light. The thing about it is, is those who try to justify things like the return of Israel is of God's hand, they ignore unrighteousness. They're willing to ignore unrighteousness, and they're also willing to accept God's word is not inviolate, that he goes against his word. And we also know that the, that certain... Um, Covenants were conditional, and some were unconditional. If the land was unconditional covenant, they would have never been exiled, no matter how righteous or unrighteous they were. But thus, if they've been exiled numerous times over history and not had access to the land, that means that there are conditions tied to them being allowed to occupy that land. Thus, you have to ask the real question, is this of God's hand or is this for a different purpose, maybe by the adversary? So we'll jump into the third prophetic, third false prophetic assumption is that in the book of, well, I think when you look at Hosea's prophecies in chapter three, four, and five of the book, you talk about the fact that they point out that there is a return of Israel to the land and not a reconnection with God through a Messiah. Get into Hosea there. Yeah, for those who believe Hosea was referring in these chapters to the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel in the latter days, breaking down the context, let's take a look at chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. For the Israelites will live many days without a king or priest, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Ephod or idol means that they have no access to hearing the voice of God. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling the Lord in his blessings in the last days. Okay, look at that specifically. David their king. Is David going to be resurrected? No. It's an idiom that refers to the king who came from the line of David, which specifically means that they will return and come trembling back when Yeshua the Messiah, the king, returns, which only occurs at either Armageddon and the messianic, the millennial reign period. So Hosea 3.4 has already said that, that this cannot return, that they will not have a kingdom until David, their king, a.k.a. Messiah, is there to rule over them. What is Hosea talking about there in chapter 6, in verse 1, when he says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. That's really a message to the Israelites, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is, because remember how I said Isaiah in one one was speaking to Judah and Jerusalem because he was the prophet to Judah and Jerusalem? Hosea was a prophet to the kingdom of Israel. They each had specific prophets. This is another reason why it's really dangerous to ever go back into the Old Testament and take something, a prophet, who was dedicated to a specific time frame, nation, people, and then try to take a single scripture, rip it out, bring it to the 21st century, and say, he was talking about now. And this goes back to the misunderstanding today's theologians or even anybody who studies prophecy has with the Bible, is we don't think the way the ancient Hebrews did. When they wrote, as in with Hosea in this, in this book, he was writing specifically to a people about a specific event that would specifically occur to them over the course of history. Okay? And when we get into Hosea 6.1, we know instantly he's speaking prophetically to the kingdom of Israel. Just as we saw in an earlier chapter, Isaiah was speaking to Judah and Jerusalem. We have theologians going back to the 19th century. We have ancient rabbis who referred to this in the Messianic age. They knew this. And yet we're trying to pull it and call 1947, 1948 the Messianic age. I mean, think about this. If you were the adversary and you really wanted to keep people from following the gospel, hearing the gospel, actually learning about the kingdom of God, then wouldn't you want to put everybody's eyes on something that is falsely interpreted, and from that we've created things like the messianic movement, where we go back under the law, and where people have spent so much time focusing on the prophecies and naming dates and and looking at all these things, and yet Jesus said, when you see these things, look up. He didn't say, spend all your time doing yada, yada, yada. Look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. We're supposed to be focusing on the kingdom of God and the gospel and how to grow in relationship and trust, not all this other stuff, and yet that's what we have ended up doing. Well, there's so many people that fight over this this whole topic of Israel. They, fight, I mean, to the to fist fights, and it's ridiculous because you can get you can get 20 pastors in a room, and I'll bet you they'll all have a much different opinion, even on the interpretation of one scripture. Now, 1947 is talked a lot about when we get into the topic of Israel. God spoke through Ezekiel, they say and Isaiah to predict the 1947 return of Israel as a kingdom. But the fourth false prophetic assumption, which is what I just said, God spoke through Ezekiel and Isaiah to predict the 1947 return of Israel as a kingdom, because that's not how you read that, do you? Right. There are two two verses in the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel that are considered primary scriptures used by those who determine the prophetic of Israel's birth in 1947 as being accomplished by God's both God's hand and his word. Thus the question that needs to be addressed here is the prophet's words being addressed to the children of Israel in their current Babylonian bondage and exile? Or is Ezekiel referring to the scattered tribes who were of the kingdom of Israel and suggesting a potential return to the land? Or is his message tied to an even future return, i.e. the messianic? One rabbinical commentary refers to I will purge you out from among the rebels, the incorrigibly wicked I will destroy, and those who will not receive him whom I have appointed for this purpose as the Savior of Israel. Okay, who's the Savior of Israel? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. Exactly. And I will gather you who believe out of all the countries where you sojourn. Well, 
since he delivered Messiah, does it really matter where you are in the world? And and does not when you accept Messiah, you get brought back into redemption and righteousness? So this is a, a picture of the coming of Messiah centuries later while they're sitting in Babylonian captivity in the 6th century, talking about, you know what, you guys are rebels. Some of you are rebels. Some of you are incorrigibly wicked. Those I'm going to destroy. I'm going to purge the rebels out. And for the others who are wanting to come back to God, but since you have been cut off as I have done, I'm going to allow you the opportunity to come back no matter where you have been exiled to. Most of them were in Assyria at the time. The Assyrians were the ones who came in and destroyed the kingdom of Israel in the in that century. So through Messiah, everything can be brought back into wholeness. And that's what this is referring to. I will gather you who believe out of all the countries where you sojourn, bring you back to your into your own land, but those of you who will not believe will not receive the Son of David to reign over you. Boom. Now we're now we're flipping forward into the messianic period because it's referring to the son of David to reign over you and that can only be Messiah. So the new Jerusalem then in your mind is what? Because there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of people split on what is New Jerusalem in your opinion, Ken? New Jerusalem is just a kingdom that he establishes, and even the the term Jerusalem is sort of taken into a strange context, because as with all Hebrew words, they have particular meaning. So it's a reference to a messianic age, a time of peace, a new Jerusalem, a new order under Messiah, is really what it's referring to in its basic context. You know, the thing about it is, as words have changed over time, you know, the ter- the term gay that we use today actually was from like the 11th century. It was a French Germanic word that meant uh, carefree and happy. And then when you moved into like the 16th century, they started calling prostitutes and those who bought the services of prostitutes, they called them gay because they were taking carefree to a sexual connotation, extending it. And then of course in the 1920s then, that carefree sexual inhibition expanded into homosexuality. So what became one word in the 11th century has completely been usurped a hundred years later. Now let's take a look at Isaiah 11.11, which is one used particularly for the return of Israel in the 20th century by those who justify it. In that day, in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria. You remember who I said came in and destroyed the kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians. So this is specifically a reference to those who were exiled and who are the remnant who are left from lower Egypt, upper, upper Egypt, from Cush, blah, blah, blah. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, once again, it's only when... There is Messiah, the king, to rule over them. It will not come before. You cannot have a return of the kingdom without the king. They have to come at the same time, and the only time it's going to occur is during the millennial reign and during the return of Messiah. Okay, let's get into the fifth false prophetic assumption, and you say that is Ezekiel's prophecy of the dry bones in chapter 37 there, refers to a return 
to the land of Israel in 1947 by God's hand. Explain. We already know that uh, Israel was cut off from the root of David, from the rent from the house of David. They were cut off from the covenant. Okay, they did not have access to the Word of God. They did not have access to the Spirit of God. They did not have access to God at all for all that time, ever since 7th century B.C. Then, of course, we have the exile in 70 A.D. Well, you know what? There's not a single temple that's been built that has a Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God resides in any temples made by hands. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and light. No man comes to the Father but by me. For those Jews who, have not, who did not accept Messiah... When he was on the earth, or afterwards, or even today, there is no connection to the Spirit of God. They are outside of covenant relationship. The new covenant and the old covenant was finished. And let's take a look at Ezekiel 37, 22 through 25. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. Okay, so we have so the d- divided kingdom will once again be a united kingdom. There'll be no Judah and Israel, it'll just be simply one. They shall be no more two, two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. And then we get to Isaiah thirty-seven twenty-four, And David, my servant, shall be king over them. Whoop! Since David is long dead, he's not going to be resurrected. It's an idiom for the one who is the king through the seed of David, Messiah. And they shall have one shepherd. Who is the shepherd? Messiah, Yeshua, and they shall walk in my judgments. Who has the right to judge? Messiah, and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers have dwelled, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. This is obviously, in every sense of the word, this Ezekiel chapter Regarding the dry bones, it's talking about the millennial reign, the messianic age, the Messiah ruling forever. Well, and also, not just the Old Testament, but when you cross-reference these scriptures in Ezekiel with even the book of Acts, the book of John, John there in 7, verse 42, they're talking about that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where, where David was. So, interesting. Right. Now, now here's, here's one where everybody loves to say, out of the mouth of three witnesses is truth, correct? Correct. <laughs> now, now that we've talked about the first few chapters, Hosea 3, 4, and 5, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling the Lord in the last days. Messianic. Hosea is talking about it. Isaiah. In that day, the Lord shall reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant of the people left, he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Again, messianic millennial reign. Ezekiel 37:24. And David, my servant, shall be their king over them. Three different prophets, three different references to a, a return of the exile, a pulling back of the people, so they will be as one, all referencing you know, David, my servant, the seed of David, the root of Jesse, shall be king over them. It is unequivocal. There's no reference at all to a prior return until there is a king to reign over them forever. 
So you can sort of cross-reference Hosea 3, 4 to 5 there, Isaiah 11, 11 to 12, Ezekiel 37, 24. So three different prophets, witnesses, you're saying are speaking about the same act, the Almighty will manifest, and that's going to be essentially only coming after Yeshua returns, correct? Right. You cannot have the kingdom without the king. You cannot have the return of the people until they have a king of the line of David to rule over them. Right now in the in the country of Israel, do we have a, a, a Messiah? No. No, we do not. So right here, you then have to ask, if by God's hand the return of Israel was done in 1947 by his hand, then he's just gone against his word, which now makes the question, who benefits from the return of the land prior to the millennial reign and the return of the king. Very interesting perspective. And to really study the context of scriptures. Anyway, the sixth false prophetic assumption, and this is a big one because we're talking about Daniel chapter 9. We know it refers to a covenant made with the land of Israel during the time of the tribulation period. And I think, Ken... One of the more popular beliefs regarding this whole chapter of Daniel 9, when we talk about end-time prophecy, is it's talking about the nation of Israel makes a covenant with the Antichrist. So get into these verses here in Daniel 9 and why that's a false prophetic assumption. What I'm going to start with is I'm going to ask you a question. Is there any prophecy that was given over a period of time that stopped and then was not fulfilled 2,000 years later? I'm assuming you're talking about the prophecy of the 70 weeks given to Daniel about the end times. Exactly. In essence, there's not a single prophecy that would go 69 weeks from beginning to end, stop, and then 2,000 years later, oh, we're going to do the final week then. No. The 70 weeks is a reference to a time frame of 70 weeks of years from beginning to end. Okay? What you're going to find in Daniel chapter 9. By the way, what I'm going to show you is that those in the 19th century, during the era of the Philadelphia church, the ones who were given a great deal of spiritual insight and spiritual wisdom and spiritual prophecy during the during that time, you're going to see that they did not believe that the 70th week was delayed. They believed that the 70th week occurred just as it did at the time of Yeshua, and that's what we're going to try to break down. Okay, in uh, verses 1 through 15 of Daniel 9, the prophet is acknowledging the iniquity of God's people and their unrighteousness in following the covenants. It's sort of like a precursor in Paul's letters. You know, when Paul was writing to the churches, he would chastise them for what they're doing wrong, he would tell them what they're doing right, and he would praise them for, you know, and then he would get to the meat of what he was going to say. It was sort of like an introduction. Hi. I'm Paul, and I'm here to tell you what you're doing right, doing wrong, and what you can do to correct it. And that's what Daniel is doing. Daniel is sitting there going, you know what, Daniel 9.5, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and thy judgments. And you get to verse 7. O Lord, righteous belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near, that are far off throughout the countries, throughout all the countries, where thou hast driven them because of their trespass, and they have trespassed against thee. So Daniel is not only acknowledging 
those that are in the tribe of Judah who were the only ones remaining, the inhabitants of Jerusalem who, you know, could have been anyone at the time from any type of uh, nation or country, because there were non-Jews living in Jerusalem, and to all of Israel who have been driven off to other countries because of their trespass. He's referring to the exiled tribes from the kingdom of Israel, the ones who were exiled. So we've got the Judah, you know, all those. He's kind of breaking it down, though, into three sort of distinctive groups there, though, isn't he? He is. That's exactly what Daniel is. See, Daniel was not a prophet to anyone. Daniel was a prophet of God that was set aside. As a matter of fact, where was Daniel? Daniel was in Babylon. And one of the things that people don't realize is Daniel eventually became the head magi. He's the one who trained the three magi, their forefathers, to teach them what to look for in the stars so that eventually when Messiah came, these magi, who were known as kingmakers back in, back in the ancient, uh, ancient days, they would recognize what was in the stars because Daniel, you know, as the, as the head magi in Babylon during that time, had taught them what to look for. So Daniel was sort of like a man unto himself and was, was very special and very separate in his prophecies. So he, was refer- he wasn't somebody dedicated to Judah or dedicated to Israel. In this case, he was talking about all of them, recognizing the men of Judah who were righteous because uh, Judah was the last tribe that would remain, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, him being in Babylon and, you know, or, you know, most of the time, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and then to all Israel who had through, been driven off because of their trespasses, which refers to the cutting off of, of Israel from uh, the house of David. Now, if we focus on verse 7, we see, okay, we separate those. As Daniel is acknowledging the differences by which God will deal with each segregated peoples, giving one Judah the opportunity for redemption in the near future through Messiah ben Joseph, and the other redemption in the distant future through Messiah ben David. The first and second coming, that's where their redemption lies. For those who were not cut off, those of Judah, their redemption would come when Yeshua came, died on the cross, and gave the new covenant. For those who were cut off, the ten tribes and that, their redemption only comes when Messiah comes again as Messiah ben David, the uh, conquering king. They're talking about 70 weeks from when the people will return from their captivity. So there's only one event that puts an end to sins, the cross. So we're talking 70 weeks determined from there to finish the transgression to make an end of sins. So we already know that he's talking right there about 70 weeks would encompass an entire period, an entire period in chronological order from beginning to end, from when they were allowed to leave their captivity to when they would build the temple to when the righteous one would come to finish the transgression and make an end of sins when Messiah would go to the cross. So we're talking about those specific things. Now we get to Daniel 9.25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The, the street shall be built again, the wall and even the troublesome times. Now, the first event described in the series of, of verses is readily understandable and was fulfilled to the letter when exactly seven weeks plus three score, 60, and two weeks, total of 69, were given as the time period 
from 483 years from when Daniel received the commandment to when the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people of Jerusalem would declare him, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. From an exact 433 years from when they were told that they could leave to, to build the temple to the day Messiah walked into Jerusalem and they declared him Messiah. Now, to note here is the reference of troubled times. People have always said, okay, troubled times, they think of tribulation. You know, it's interesting, and I want to bring this up. If you take a look in Revelation or anywhere in the Bible, the word tribulation is not capitalized. It's not a noun or a proper, proper name. It's an adjective. It's simply describing the way things are. If you take a look in this specifically, it's not, a, it's not an accident of the, the translator. Because if you look in the Old Testament, when it refers to the rock, R in rock is capitalized, denoting a person, place, or thing, a proper noun, proper name. So it specifically is, is not capitalized, which means it's not a noun, it's an adjective. In the book of Daniel there, one of the big beliefs, Ken, is that it's written about the tribulation period and the Antichrist. Right, exactly. And that's just it. Because they've interpreted it to suddenly be, oh, it's been delayed, it's been whatever. So it fits into that time frame of seven, seven years because they take, they take this incorrectly. Now I'm going to show you exactly what it means and the fact that it's not a covenant with Antichrist. It's a covenant with Messiah. And I'll show you what, where it comes to. Um, the 49 years or first seven weeks designation is regards to the difficult times the children of Israel would would be because remember there are three different references here that it talks about it talks about the 70 weeks it talks about a 69 week period which references the 483 years and then it also talks about a separate period 49 years yeah okay here's where it gets a little complicated because what we're seeing is because he broke those down into three separate things that means these are three separate events some occurring within the entirety of the 70 weeks Okay, and after three score and two weeks, yeah, after 62 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end there, thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Now, one of the things is people have, you know, if you look back and I said troubled times, what does that mean? Well, when the people left Babylonian captivity, and went back to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild the temple. Who was in charge of Jerusalem? They were going to rebuild it under the occupation of the Roman Empire. That's the troubled times, because they had to sell this idea to the Romans. Now, the uh, second event referenced in Daniel 26 is tied to the finality of the three score and two weeks, the final uh, 434 years. Okay, now we move forward to that seven-year period, the seven weeks in Daniel 9.27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Okay? The covenant. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, to fully and grasp to understand about this entire thing, we're talking seven years. How long was, approximately was Jesus's ministry? Three years. Three, three and a half. Right. So when he started his ministry, 
he was confirming he was confirming a covenant at three and a half years when he went to go on the cross. What happened to the veil in the Holy of Holies? It was torn in two. And did not the Spirit of God leave? And, God and, left and, the building, as they say. <laughs> exactly. And so when Jesus took on the sins for the world, was there any need ever again for sacrifice and oblation? Never. Okay. So we have from when he started his ministry to the time of the crucifixion, right approximately three and a half years, by the shedding of his blood, it ended the need for sacrifice and oblation. In the 18th century, there was a uh, the first mention of the tribulation by Margaret MacDonald, one of uh, John Darby's followers. Matthew Henry, a world-famous Bible commentator and scholar, said, By offering himself a sacrifice one and for all, Jesus put an end to the Levitical sacrifices. Thus, Mr. Henry applied Daniel 9.27 to Christ, not the Antichrist. Another famous commentary of the early 19th century written by British Methodist scholar Adam Clark says, that Daniel 9.27's term of seven years, Jesus himself would confirm or ratify the new covenant with mankind. Even renowned scholars of the 20th century have identified the one who confirms or enforces a new covenant is Christ, and he did this in the middle of the week, the three and a half years starting from when he started you know, the, the crucifixion. The confirmation of the new covenant is assigned to him. Now, at the three and a half point, your point, it says that he breaks off the covenant with some. What happened at the three-and-a-half-year point moving forward from the crucifixion at another three-and-a-half years, since the covenant was for a full seven years originally with many nations? Well, if you remember three-and-a-half years, and you, you can look and research the timeline, whatever, the Sanhedrin convicted and stoned Stephen to death. And from that point on, the message of Messiah went almost completely to the Gentiles, not to Israel. That was the point when the covenant of week from seven years exactly or pretty close from the time Jesus started his ministry to the time Stephen was stoned was exactly seven years with exactly at the three and a half year point, the crucifixion and the new covenant. So the land of Israel is paramount in the book of Revelation end time prophecy is one of the things that people say. But when you do a word or a key search for Israel in the book of Revelation, as you point out, the number of times it occurs in a verse or scripture there in Revelation is a big fat zero, Ken. Get into that. Yeah, let me let me bring up some things. I think I've already at least given a very agreeable interpretation of Daniel's seventh, yeah. 70th week. Okay, so that means that it was done at the time of Jesus, and it isn't referring to a tribulation, it isn't referring to the end times. So there is no Old Testament prophecy that does not refer to the millennial reign, the messianic reign, okay? It doesn't refer to anything outside of uh, after the new covenant came, okay? Anything that still remains in the Old Testament prophecies is talking about the return of Messiah and the millennial reign. What land is John the Revelator speaking to there? Ah, we're going we're gonna to get to that real quick. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to do when I was going through is I looked at all the Old Testament, and I saw them all pointing to the millennial reign, the return of the king. Everything had to do with Messiah's second coming. Okay. So then I had to look at Revelation. What Maybe Revelation, because you know what people say? People say that the two witnesses are in Jerusalem preaching the gospel. 
they say that the land this, the land that, and I'm like, okay, so let me look look in Revelation. Israel's not mentioned zero times. As a matter of fact, when you take a look at uh, Israel, it only refers to the children of Israel, not the land, but the children of Israel, those who are descendant of Israel. Jerusalem itself is not referred to, but New Jerusalem is. And of course, that refers to the coming of the millennial era or millennial times, millennial reign. The kingdom of Judah, there's no reference at all in Revelation to the kingdom of Judah. The land, there's no reference at all to, in the book of Revelation, the land. Temple, now here's where it gets interesting. And this is where you've got to break down the actual Greek words. There are seven references to the word temple in the book of Revelation, you know, because everybody thinks you're going to rebuild the third temple. However, none of these references are at all to an earthly temple. And instead, all references are to a heavenly temple from which angels exit to perform tasks that are done in the, earth in the end times. And we're going to take a look at some of those real quick. Here, here's one of the most important things. Temple, the Greek word naos. Now, there's two definitions. Let's see which one is applicable at the time of Revelation. Of course, Revelation was written in the New Covenant, not the Old. The Greek word temple, which is in Revelation 11, I believe, means this. Used of the temple at Jerusalem, but only of the sacred edifice or sanctuary itself, consisting of the holy place and the holy of holies, where the image of God was placed, which is distinguished from the whole enclosure. Now, does the Spirit of God reside in the holy of holies anymore? No. So it can't refer to a physical temple. Even if they rebuild it, in Revelation, it only refers to the Holy of Holies. The Spirit of God does not reside. Now, there's a second definition in the Greek. It's a metaphor. The spiritual temple consisting of the saints of all ages joined together by and in Christ. Whoops! This is a spiritual temple. And it's also tied to the two witnesses. Now, the interesting thing about the witnesses is for years we've always said, oh, it's Elijah and Moses or Enoch or, you know, two men, whatever, have, have come, come for this. Well, the fascinating thing about it is when you look at the word witnesses, it's the Greek word martis. And here's the definition of it. Those who, after his example, have proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. Did Moses, Enoch... Elijah, did they have faith in Messiah and undergo a violent death because of it? Whoa! So, so the witnesses have to be somebody from the New Covenant era. So, I mean, the only place in the Bible that speaks of two witnesses, not of the earth, coming forth from heaven to serve a purpose is right in there in Revelation chapter 11. Exactly. Now, the witnesses are said to walk in the holy city. But let's look at holy city real quick. What is meant by the holy city referenced in Revelation 11:2, which scripture denotes is open for the Gentiles to tread upon for three and a half years? Well, that word, Greek word uh, city is polis. Exactly. And what is the definition? The it's heavenly what, Jerusalem. Yeah, the abode Jerusalem. of the blessed in heaven, the visible capital of the heavenly kingdom to come down to earth after the renovation of the world by fire. Now, I made a reference to something L.A. Marzulli has said over and over will occur when these tribulation events start occurring, he made the observation that the line that delineates between this plane, this earth, and the heavens is going to break. Just as in the time of Noah, when the watchers of the, of the first and second heaven came down from their estates and mated with human women, it's going to be a time when, just like in the days of Noah, 
that entities will be able to move back and forth, back and forth between the first and second heavens. Interesting. Well, there's a lot more to get into on this topic. I think I almost want to have you come back for a part two of this series, because Revelation itself is very, you know, whether it's Revelation 13, Revelation 11, it's amazing how a lot of people just read it and then they just make an assumption. But I think when you do a exegesis on it, you really see something starts to emerge here, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, from the very beginning, the entirety of uh, God's walk with Abraham was for the eventual coming of Messiah, and then at the end of time, the eventual reign of Messiah. That's what the whole thing has been about. So prophecy has not been about, for the most part, except over time, events that have a purpose towards bringing Messiah. And if Revelation does not even mention Israel, Judah, the temple, any of this at all, then why would it have any purpose at all for the return of Messiah? What's the bottom line in all of this when we really take a macro view of everything we just shared here, Ken? What's the bottom line? The bottom line is this, is that we're not supposed to judge things by the words. We're supposed to judge things by the fruit. If you take a look at how Israel came to be a country, starting with the Zionist movement, entering World War I, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, the leading to World War II, the uh, return of Israel, and then Israel today, you have to ask yourself, is the return of Israel by God's hand, was there repentance done to bring the people into the land, is there righteousness in the land today, and what purpose really is there for a return to the land after Messiah came and delivered the kingdom of God. Because as most people who believe in Israel return, they think that there's this preconceived assumption that God would bring back the land to give the Jews who refuse to accept Messiah, give them an opportunity and a loophole for redemption. If that's the case, then Yeshua's sacrifice was for naught, and God's word, as we've seen and broken down in all of these different chapters by the prophets, then God's word is incorrect and is wrong. You have to ask yourself, is Messiah the only way? And is God's word without error? If it is, then you have your conclusion. Take away all the other stuff the, the apostles wrote, the prophets wrote. What, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, when you see these things, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. It's good to note these things when they're coming, but it doesn't mean you get so deeply involved that it consumes your life or consumes what your focus is. The focus is is that you should, we should have, from day one, accepting Yeshua, accepting Messiah, is to grow in relationship and to grow in the kingdom of God. Um, and especially as these events towards his return come, the focus should be even greater. It's not a matter of, all these little things like prophecy clubs that have suddenly sprung up and the messianic movement that only came because all of a sudden the return of Israel, maybe the law is important and we must go back under the law, et cetera, et cetera. All this, all this stuff is for naught. And to be honest, if, if our focus has been moved away from, from the kingdom of God and from Messiah to all of this other doctrinal stuff, then really who benefits by the return of Israel? Is it God, is it Messiah, or is it the adversary who's laughing 
as we focus on things that are meaningless that really have no no truth to our to our lives while messiah sits up there and goes i'm knocking at the door but you're at somebody else's house I think if you get so bogged down in everybody's, uh, you know, looking at the blood moons, the Shemitah, what this means, what is what is this sign in the sky? I mean, people do get really bogged down. But what did Jesus say? You know, if you're my disciples, you'll follow my commandments and you will also do as I do. Well, what did he do when he was here? Well, the great commission of Jesus Christ is to preach the gospel, heal the sick. Heal the sick cast out devils. We are supposed to be doing those things and concentrating much more in getting people saved than worrying about to the prophecy of the week. You, do you think if, if even 1% of those who call themselves Christians were walking and laying on hands and bringing healing and do, providing miracles like we saw as supposed to be our birthright as a new creature, that's our birthright, if we were doing these things that the apostles were doing, if even 1%, do you think that the world would actually be rejecting the church and Christianity? No, I don't, because he says right in the word there that in the Great Commission, those signs and wonders would follow. We are supposed to be seeing the deaf hear, the blind see, people being healed, and that is how they come into accepting the Messiah. I mean, nothing in their little magical kingdom can beat that. Hey, exactly, and if you want to think about it, what did... uh, I believe it was Elijah when he challenged um, Elijah challenged to show down with the to, prophets of Baal. Exactly, and he he wet his uh, his altar down, and he, you know what? Called they, down they, fire. <laughs> exactly, and they couldn't even get theirs to light with a torch. <laughs> Ken, thank you so much for coming on the program and sharing this book, folks. Ken's information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com, and I've also linked this book where you can get it on Amazon. The Israel Deception, very interesting book, Ken. There's so much more to get into, and I really appreciate you coming on. And I hope you come and see us soon. Certainly, and if somebody wants to get a, a softback book, they can go to um, the Daily Economist. And there's a link to it also there, along with the Amazon one. Thank you very much for coming on the program tonight, Ken. Thank you, Sheila, and uh, I appreciate the time. Folks, again, that was Ken Georgia, and his information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. Also, for people wanting the podcast of this last Friday's show with Pastor Stephen Anderson, we had some issues getting the archive uploaded. There are some technical issues. We are working on it, but it should be there by this evening. And just a reminder that this show is 100% listener-funded. I depend fully on donations to keep the show on the air. So I am asking, please do what you can. Please prayerfully consider partnering with me so that I can continue bringing you one of the very few shows of its kind on the air. Thank you in advance. I really appreciate that people want this show to continue. A lot of people listen. A lot of people say this show impacts them. And I just really believe that a workman is worthy of his wages. And it takes a lot of work to bring you only the best cutting edge guests. So please do what you can. We have a great lineup for the rest of the week. See you tomorrow, folks. Good night and God bless.